They say your whole life flashes before your eyes when you die. And it's true. Even for a blind man. Damn, that was actually a really good movie. What movie would that be? Daredevil Director's Cut. What, you've never seen it? No. It's an out. Apparently. Hey, everybody. Jeremy and Pete here. We want, instead of, uh... Unlike the previous episode, we watched a good movie. Well, well, depending on what cut you watched. Well, this is true. But well, you watched a decent movie. I watched a better, a much better version of a decent movie. We watched Daredevil from two thousand three. Yep. Yay! <laughs> Hold your applause until the end. This came out when superhero movies were definitely starting to get back into an upswing. Uh, I believe was the first Spider-Man was out by this point, right? Yeah, it came out in 2002. Right, and, so it just came out. Yeah, and this came out about three months before X-Men 2 did. So definitely in the hot, in kind of a hot hot swing of things. Yep. Uh, it's directed by Mark Stephen Johnson, who um, has some minor credits under his belt. So he's been a writer, he's been a producer, and he's been a director. And... It's for better or for worse in a lot of different projects. Yep. The Based on the uh, commentary for the director's cut version, I didn't listen to the whole thing. I listened to some of it, and he did say that he was a fan of the Daredevil comic series. I'd have to wonder what Disney's going to do with their Daredevil remake, so quasi-remake. Mm. Did you hear about this? Yeah, I know they're doing the Netflix series. Right, about four major heroes, Luke Cage and Daredevil being two of them. Luke Cage is in it. I thought you said major heroes. And then all of our all Luke Cage fans are going to hear that and come for our blood. Oh. Thanks. <laughs> well, I was the one who said it. <laughs> yeah, true. All right, all right. I don't have anything against Luke Cage. To be honest, I barely even know who the character is. The only thing I've really seen him in was uh, the video game Spider-Man Web of Shadows, and he beat the crap out of people. And Well, that yeah. this kind of thing. Yeah, I. But that was about it. <laughs> Anyway, this is one of the more famous uh, superhero movies from the last 20 years because it It didn't raise up semi-nobodies to the roles. It did major stars. Yep. We had... Starring Ben Affleck as the man without fear, Daredevil. Jennifer Garner as Electra Nachios. Yay. Michael Clark Duncan in probably one of his best roles as the Kingpin. Yep. And Colin Farrell as Bullseye, the se- second villain of the movie. And is probably one of the best, uh, how do you say it, baseline villains. He's not super-powered, but he's just still creepy as hell. Yep, and very memorable, too. And then we also had minor stars in Joe Pian- ah, excuse me. Joey Pants. Joe- That's the, his nickname. I'm not- Joe Pantaleano, yeah. John Farrow, and... David uh, John Favreau, also known as the director of Iron Man 1 and 2. And he played Iron Man's uh, bodyguard in Iron Man 1, 2, and 3. And for the record, he plays the exact same character in this movie, but we'll get to that soon. This had a bud- budget of $78 million and more than doubled that. So, in the box office, coming in at international at just under $180 million. However, uh, its original cut, which was 133 minutes, was cut down to 103. Yep. Uh, we'll get into that momentarily as we compare the two versions. Uh, Pete watched the theatrical cut, and I watched the director's cut, because I remembered that I had the DVD. <laughs> so the short but sweet IMDb synopsis calls a man blinded by toxic waste, which also enhances remaining senses, fights crime as our acrobatic martial arts superhero. It's a little bit more complicated than that. <laughs> but that's the gist of it. Yep. So, let's talk about the character background. Daredevil, a.k.a. the man without fear. Uh, originally, rich secret identity is Matt Murdock, and originally debuted in April of 1964 in Daredevil No. 1. This character was created by Stan Lee and Bill Everett, with input from Jack Kirby. Originally designed with a yellow and red costume, he was changed over to his more familiar silver red costume by issue 7. Blinded as a child by radioactive waste, a young Matt Murdock found that his other four senses became supercharged, including a, quote, radar sense, 
based on scent and sound that lets him detect in local proximity most objects and persons around him. Following his father's mob-ordered death by the mobster Fixer, Fixer rather, Matt makes a costume of his father's boxing robes and enters as Daredevil, the man without fear. Now, traditionally a loner, compared in contrast to most of the superhero community, he does maintain friendships with Spider-Man, Luke Cage, and a regular baseline human, Ben Ulrich. A, he's a beat reporter for the Daily Bugle. When Daredevil started, generally with super-powered enemies in his early years, definitely kind of in the height of the Silver Age. In recent years, he generally sticks to organized and petty crime, traditionally known to the, quote, Hell's Kitchen, a.k.a. the modern Clinton neighborhood. This comic was most notable for propelling comic writer Frank Miller to new heights in the industry. Daredevil was retooled in the 80s by Miller to be one of Marvel's most successful business properties, as well as the more compelling anti-heroes. Instead of superpowered heroes, we had the Kingpin as his major villain, a.k.a. Will Winston Fisk, and Bullseye is one of the more prolific, quote, supervillains, if you could call Bullseye that, in the 80s. Electro was also introduced by Miller as an on-again, off-again villain until killed off by Miller, and he requested Marvel not bring her back. Yeah, that didn't take. Yeah, Really, a comic book character that dies and comes back to life? I've never heard of that before. Hey, is that Jean Grey over there? Yeah. Which one? Mm, hey, is that Superman it. over there? Or is that five Supermen over there? To be fair, Superman's only died once. This is true. Well, what universe? Okay. So how did you know this character before you saw the film? I first saw him in the Fantastic Four 90s cartoon. Pretty much how I got, that's how I got introduced to a lot of like the side Marvel characters was the Fantastic Four, Spider-Man, and Iron Man shows. Uh, he shows up in the first season of, or the first episode of season two. The plot of it was Doctor Doom sets off like this big bomb, and it knocks out the powers of the Fantastic Four, which also turns Ben Grimm back into a human. And he meets uh, he meets with Matt Murdock, and they just introduce him as you know he's a lawyer, he's a blind lawyer, and then he shows up again later on in the episode as Daredevil. And he was pretty cool in this one. They the whole show the season two of Fantastic Four was really cool because they kinda went with like more darker colors, kind of like Batman the Animated Series did, but still with like the design style of like X Men of the nineties. And so Daredevil had like this cool red and black look to him. And they showed him off as a capable character, you know, he helped out the Fantastic Four, he was really tough. And then the next time I saw him, the only other time I really saw him was in the Spider-Man show, where he was Peter Parker's lawyer because Peter was on trial for something or other. I can't remember what. But It's Spider-Man. It happens. Yeah. And then so both Spidey and Daredevil get to fight the Kingpin together. I believe this was the first time Spider in the show that Spider-Man tried going up against the Kingpin, you know, one-on-one. And throughout the whole show, he'd make all these fat jokes about him. Yeah, King T- Kingpin grabs him, squeezes the life out of him, and throws him to the ground. And goes, only about 1% of my body is fat. <laughs> so that's also how I got introduced to the Kingpin as well, was the Spider-Man animated show. And I liked, I liked Daredevil from what I saw of him. And I remember when the movie was coming out and came out, I wanted to see it, but none of my friends did. And because I didn't feel, I, at the time I didn't think, oh, I should just go see the movie by myself, I didn't see it in theaters. Which, kind of disappointed about that. Well, we'll get to my experience after the first break. Okay. No one cared much about the death of a washed-up prize fighter. Nobody but me. I would keep my promise. I would help those that others wouldn't. I would seek justice. One way or another. And we're back. My experience at Daredevil and actually a lot of the Marvel Universe came from the Spider-Man comic strip. My parents got the um, St. Louis Post-Dispatch every weekend and most Mondays, and I always got to see um, comic strips. And written by Stan Lee for a very long time, there was a Spider-Man comic strip. And occasionally other Marvel heroes would guest star. There was a run with Beast, there, and there was also a run with Daredevil. Um, Beast was actually kind of memorable in my mind because for a Stan Lee product, and Stan hasn't really been a major 
writer of Marvel for a very even long time before this, it was pretty dark as hell. We had essentially Mary Jane. One storyline was Mary Jane having a fever sequence where Hobgoblin not only killed Beast but killed the crap out of Peter with by just tossing pumpkin bomb after pumpkin bomb at the guy. See, those deaths I don't mind, like where they have, where it's an obvious, like, kind of fever dream sort of thing, or even if they try to trick you into seeing It wasn't obvious at the time. Okay, I like, like, I like that then. I kind of like yeah. those where a character's having a fever dream, then they end up waking up, but it, to the audience and to the character, it feels real. real. Right. It kind of those mind this, moments. Or, you know, it's a fan named Puck trying to get a hold of an ancient relic. Oh, that too. So, so uh, Daredevil definitely appeared, and... Stan Lee was, I'll say this for Stan Lee, for the Spider-Man comic strip was actually a really good way to learn about other characters because they explained who Daredevil was, they explained what his power set was. Now, granted, he wasn't the dark anti-hero that he was in the Frank Miller comics, but that was a pretty good introduction. Now, uh, Kingpin occasionally showed up in the Spider-Man comic strip, but I more knew him from the cartoon, 1994 cartoon. But uh, this was, honestly, this movie was my very first exposure to both Bullseye and Elektra. Yeah, same here. I had never heard of yeah. either of them before this movie. I may have, you know, looked them up on the internet briefly before going into the movie, but other than that, yeah, this was my first major experience with both characters. So, like we said before, I watched the theatrical version and Jeremy watched the director's cut. There's some basic but pretty critical differences. First of all, the theatrical cut is... Um, just it's under two hours. It's only at 103 movies rated PG-13. Yeah, the director cut, director's cut is 133 minutes over two hours, and it's rated R. So, why? So, what did your research find? Why did they create uh, two different cuts in the movie? Well, my assumptions before I found out is we were both wondering why they did it different cuts. Um, luckily, there was direct there was commentary in the director's cut, but my assumption was. Okay, the director's cut's rated R. They wanted PG-13 to reach a wider audience. That that makes sense. Uh, but and it's also 33 minutes. You know, it's, it's 30 minutes longer. But I listened to the audio commentary, and within like the first two minutes of the movie, uh, Mark Johnson, the writer and director of the film, said that the theatrical cut was created. Why else? Due to pressure from the studio. The director's cut. It's longer, slower paced. It focuses more on actual story, so the plot is a very much more fleshed out. Actu there are plot holes in the theatrical cut that are actually filled in the director's cut. And it also downplays the romance between Matt Murdock and Elektra. And so he said that the studio wanted it to be faster paced. They wanted it to be shorter. They wanted more action. And, like, he didn't say it specifically, but I'm going to assume they wanted PG-13 because you get a bigger audience with PG-13 than you do with R. And so he basically said, okay, I had to do it. You know, he didn't... It sounded like, you know, he probably could have pushed, but, I mean, this was, from what we looked up, this is about his second directing job. So I could see him kind of being pressured by studios and having to do so. And he even said, and I've seen in all the stuff I've looked up, that the theatrical version, one of the biggest criticisms of it was the story was weak. And the studio was the one that said, you know, no, cut down on the story, we want more action. And the director's cut fixes this, fleshes out characters, it rearranges some scenes, adds a, a completely new subplot that actually ties into the main story and helps fix some problems at the end of the film. And like I said, it adds... Actually, you know, explanations for what were plot holes in the theatrical version. And both Avi Arad and Mark Johnson, who do the commentary, both say that this is an improvement over the original. And they're right. If you look up reviews for both versions of the film, the theatrical cut got, I think it got like about average reviews when it came out. But the director's cut, when it came out on DVD, got higher reviews. Everyone said, this fixes the majority of the problems with the movie. Unless your problem was Ben Affleck, this will fix the problems you had with the movie. Let's talk about Mr. Affleck, because you know what? I don't hate him. I don't either. I know every, a lot of nerds are up in arms because he's playing Batman, which is a surprise considering after this, Affleck promised he'd never put on a costume again for a superhero movie. You know what? Maybe this wasn't right, the, exactly the right role for him, mm -hmm. but I don't 
think he's a bad actor. He's even a better director. Yeah, I don't think he's a bad actor at all. I've, most of the stuff I've seen him in are the movies he's been in directed by Kevin Smith, like Chasing Amy and Dogma and those. And he does a really good job in those movies. And I think it just, for him, it depends on who's writing, who's directing, and what, he, what type of part he's playing. And I don't think he does a bad job in this movie. Was he miscast? Arguably. That's arguable. But I think he does his best with it. I think he does a good job. He has said that he is a fan of the Daredevil comics. And I did read that after this movie came out, he said, you know, not really interested in doing a sequel unless they do it much closer to the comics. And he did say he wanted Kevin Smith to uh, direct. Which, to be fair, Kevin Smith did write a lot of the Daredevil comics. Yeah. Um, I didn't know Kevin Smith was involved with the comics. Well, yep. could be worse. They could have had Frank Miller directing. <laughs> so, yes, I know people are a fan of... People might be a fan of Spirit, but that was really bad. <laughs> we'll move on. So, honestly, the weakest actor in this movie is Jennifer Garner. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm not saying she can't do... Action well, I've heard a lot of good friends who comment who like Alias, but knowing what I know about the electric character, and this is me, you know, going to Wikipedia, mm-hmm. this is a weird, weird approach to Electra, and I don't think she carries it very well. Uh, see, my main problem with her in this movie is I think she does a good job in the action scenes. I think she, yeah. you know, one thing I have to say, first of all, I have great respect for anyone who gets put into a role in a movie and has to go through absurd training and exercise and dieting to get into, you know, good shit, you know, get into shape for it. So I have major respect for her. For She's in great shape in this movie. She kicks ass. She does fine in all the action scenes. Unfortunately, her performance is just flat. Yeah, she's not very interesting. The one, one of the lines in this movie that always, that always clicks in my mind whenever I think about it is when near the end of the movie when Elektra and Daredevil are fighting each other because she thinks that he was responsible for her father's death, and he goes, "I didn't kill your father," and then she goes, "Liar!" That line bugs me because it's so stupid sounding when she does it. And, yeah, maybe it wasn't the best placement. Maybe some of the writing could have used a little work and points for her character. But, yeah, she's just bland. Like, she doesn't really have a lot of energy in it, as opposed to Ben Affleck, who actually does try a lot in this movie. He tries to put out a great performance, and he does a good job. Or Michael Clark Duncan is fantastic as the kingpin. Well, essentially, kind of like the Emperor's New Groove. The villains are what sell this movie yes. to me. Agreed. Um, let's start with Michael Carr Duncan. You know, may he rest in peace. The guy's dead, but yes, um, he's first. He's been in a lot of big movies. He was in The Green Mile. He's been in. He's even done comedies. He was in The Whole Nine Yards, which very funny movie. He was very good in it. And I actually read for this movie, he had to gain forty pounds. Now, for those of you not familiar with Michael Clark Duncan, he's a or he was a big guy. He was he's big, and he actually had to gain weight for this role. Which is, if he actually said, one of the reasons why he didn't really, you know, he didn't want to revisit it. And something he, the only problem he had a, he had with it was he had to gain the weight because it took a while for him to lose it. But he essentially gained like forty pounds of muscle for this film, which again, great respect to that to be able to pull that off. And he comes off great in this movie. He's threatening. He's, like I said, he's a big guy, so he comes off as intimidating, especially in the director's cut, which we'll get to momentarily. But he does a, good, he does a really good job in this movie. He comes off as this, this total bastard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, he definitely carries the kingpin extremely well. And... Ironically enough, I don't remember all that time the quote-unquote racial controversy that you saw with Michael Clark Duncan versus what you saw with Lawrence Fishburne in the recent Man of Steel. Yeah, I don't... Yes, nerds don't handle change well to their favorite franchises, even when it's for the better. So, especially when it crosses racial lines. Yeah. Oh, good lord. 
There was a lot of drama on the net when Lawrence Fishburne was cast as Perry White in the new Man of Steel movie. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't, yeah. I didn't know he was cast for that role. It's internet. I mean, it, it, it's internet fans. I mean, what can I say? Yeah. But we'll get to back to this after the second break. You see it every day on the streets. Violence just begets more violence. How you want to live your life? A lawyer during the day, and then judge and jury at night. Is that what you want? Somebody has to do something. What about you? Because I can. And we're back. So, yeah, Michael Clark Duncan definitely carries the role very well, but probably my favorite of the two bad guys is um, Colin Farrell as Bullseye. Oh, yes. This was, even among Daredevil fans, people like this was his favorite, favorite, uh, this was the favorite of the movie, because Bullseye is, he's essentially, the, he's a sociopathic killer who just enjoys his work. And that's how he is in the movie. It's perfect. I mean, they even have one of my favorite moments of it is later on after he kills um, Nicholas Nachios and Kingpin finds him in his office, just kind of sitting at the uh, desk, his feet up on Kingpin's desk. And he goes, how'd you get past my security? He goes, oh, you mean that guy? And it cuts over and you see this guy with like a bunch of pencils in his neck, just lying there dead. He goes, was that really necessary? Necessary? No, it was fun. Um, and Colin's actually a native Ireland, uh, native Irish guy. So it was, he actually uh, was encouraged to use his normal voice for this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so. he does a very good job. Just from the very beginning, he comes off as this creepy, tiny bit goofy, but goofy in a more creepier way. And right. he's just fun from start to finish. Every scene he's in, he kind of steals the show a little bit. And in the director's cut, they actually added in an extra scene of him going through a metal detector in an airport to fly to New York and, you know, goes through, walks up to like the little dish, pulls out a pen, pulls out a paper clip, (laughs) puts it in there all neatly, walks through the metal detector, goes off. So they start scanning him. He's got the metal belt buckle, of course, that he uses later on. Yeah. They scan up to his head and it goes off. And he sticks his tongue out, and he's got another paperclip on it. <laughs> yeah, and so after they finish, you see he kind of looks at like one of the guard dog, like one of the police dogs. Dog just kind of sits down and puts its head on its paws. <laughs> so yeah, things you miss in the theatrical cut. Yep. So okay, so let's talk about the movie in general. Okay. It's basic plot, besides introducing Daredevil in kind of like the first 20 minutes as a kid, when he had, has his radioactive waste accident, um, and his basic ethos kind of just shows him fighting crime, and um, and probably the more the more groaning moments for me is that Matt Murdock, he's a lawyer by day, and it shows him... They're in court, and apparently it's some sort of a rape trial. And Matt's... Do you call him prosecution? I, I don't know. That I'm not sure See, of his... Yeah, I, this is like basic law 101. This is a civil trial. Okay, that works. You know, she's suing for damages. Mm-hmm. But Matt... If, but if this is some sort of criminal trial, and it's implied to be a criminal trial, we know... I mean, we know... Basically, how Matt Murnock and his partner run their practice—they're not DAs. What's going on here? Yeah, this is actually also at odds with later on in the director's cut. There's a complete side story where they take on the case of a guy who's been wrongfully accused of murder, and so they're his defense attorneys. But in this one, they're the prosecution. So I think I think what it is that. Matt Murdock wants to defend or prosecute on behalf of people that he knows for a fact are innocent and that are essentially right. victims. So anyway, yeah, what I was getting at was the um, accused in the trial is a guy by the name of Jose Casada. Ah, uh. yeah. For those who don't know, Joseph Casada was the then editor in chief of Marvel Comics. And what I understand is not very well liked, and so. Who, what is Jose Casada? He's a dirtbag. He's a rapist, and he gets 
killed about ten minutes into the movie. <laughs> yep. So after Matt loses the trial, he goes out that night as Daredevil to... Basically, he's the Punisher at this point. Mm-hmm. So um, he goes out to kill Casada, and he does so very dramatically by throwing him in front of a subway train. Yep. In the director's cut, we get a little bit more. Actually, when he was a kid, we get a little bit more. Uh, one of the things I liked about this, because, I, like I said, I haven't read the Daredevil comics, so I don't know the official background of the character, so I'm just going to go off what they do in the movie. And one thing I like about it is that he only has his father. I, they never say what happened to his mother in it. But I like the That's, fact that his father is kind of a bit of a washout in the beginning and kind of turns himself around. But he's very protective and very encouraging of Matt. You know, when he tells him, you know, don't become a fighter like me. Don't become a burnout like me. You know, do something good with your life. Don't be afraid of anything. And you can do whatever you want. And I like that, you know, that he's – and Matt also sees his father in a light, you know, that he knows he's not perfect, but he still like he still loves him. He still cares about him. And in the director's cut, they do a little bit more expansion on this, so you get a little bit extra. And they even have, like, a funny little moment where um, Matt Murdock sits that like, he talks to him. He sees that Matt's been hit because he got into a fight with a kid. And he goes, well, they were talking shit about you. And he goes, don't you cuss. What kind of shit? <laughs> little things like that. Yeah. And it was it was a nice little scene, you know, you and the director also said during this, you know, he wanted to have a little bit more expanded of the father son relationship. And so a little bit later on, when we get to him going after Jose Casada, we get a fight in a bar, which in the director's cut again, there's bit more content, and the bartender actually says to Casada, you, know, you know, how the hell can you come back in here after what you did? Like, they know that he was guilty. And Daredevil shows up, we get a bit more of an extended fight scene, and we get an improved scene where, if I remember right, in the theatrical cut, he goes after Casada. they're in a um, subway, they're in a subway station, and right. like, a train goes by, and you see Daredevil drop down because He's got, you know, the extra sensitive hearing, so louder noises, you know, stun him, can mess him up. They're probably not the best time to, you know, let yourself fall over from this. And Why was he chasing him into a subway station? <laughs> that would be a good question. Let's move on. This is true. But, so, Casada puts a gun to his head. And if I remember right, in the theatrical cut, he actually swings his head back and the gun goes off and he just misses. Am I correct? To a degree, yeah, yeah, pretty much. Well, in the director's cut, he hears the bullet, you see the bullet you know, go up into the chamber, and Daredevil quickly smacks him in the leg, dodges back, and then knocks him off the, uh, the, station, the station there, and he falls and crack! He lands on the tracks. So instead of giving him superhuman speed, they just made it a little bit, I'm not going to say more realistic, but less ridiculous, you know, he's not dodging bullets. And the gun doesn't even get doesn't even get fired. So I thought that was right. a good adjustment to that scene. So, short version. After that first introduction, basically the rest of the movie is Daredevil interacting with Elektra and Bullseye, and ultimately the Kingpin. Yeah, I'm not gonna. There's really not too much detail we have to go into that. Yeah, but. and then you know I, this isn't a full on review no, after all. No, and. Also, for things that are added, at this point, we've got to cover the things that are different between the theatrical and director's cuts, because they really added a lot. And a lot of the stuff that they added, even... Like here, There's a scene right after Daredevil gets back from, you know, killing Casada, which also in the director's cut, after the train runs him over, you know how in the theatrical cut they imply that he's been sliced in half? Yeah. Well, you actually see the two, like the two covered halves get picked up and moved. Yeah. So a little bit more violent, which is fine. I kind of like the more brutal aspect of the of the director's cut. And so one thing I really enjoyed in this movie was they don't you know Daredevil doesn't come off as this invincible guy. Now, like the one th- I, don't get me wrong, I like Batman, but one of the problems I have with some of the portrayals of him is. He does all this ridiculous stuff, but he's just a normal dude, you know, but he's invincible. You know, he doesn't really get hurt. 
obviously there are some cases where he does, but and I've said it, I'll say it before. I like Batman Forever, but he doesn't get hurt at all in that movie. Outside some of, days, you just can't get rid of a bomb. Yeah, <laughs> or in uh, oh, I'm not even going to get into it too much detail, but like Dark Knight Rises, where oh he's supposedly crippled, but he's still able to ride around on the motorcycle and fight people and knock guys out and get into action scenes. Yeah, that's believable. Um, but so when Matt Murdock gets back home. He kind of stumbles in. He's oh, you see scars all over him. He's beaten up, and he actually rips a tooth out of his mouth. And you see him having to take, you know, painkillers. And I, I just liked this. You know, it showed that you know he's not an invincible superhero. You know, he's a regular guy that just happens to have better talents, but he's still human. Well, to be fair. Um yeah, that's true. I mean, other superhero movies, even of the same era, um, the most we got was, you know, Wolverine near death in the first X-Men movie, and, yeah, Spider-Man got his butt kicked by the Goblin, but he gave just as good as he got, yeah. so, you know, we don't see this kind of, like, aftermath, like, we don't see Peter Parker having to ice his back or, mm-hmm. you know, put, ben, you know, aloe vera or whatever burns he got from a pumpkin bomb. Yeah, and we also see, I mean, given X-Men also, we see the characters that, yeah, they have powers, but they don't have healing powers like Wolverine. Like, if Cyclops gets thrown through a wall, I'm pretty sure he's not going to, he shouldn't be able to just jump right back up again. You know, outside of being able to shoot giant lasers out of his eyes, he's human. You know, he's, for the most part, human, you know, human uh, endurance. So, another cool part about the director's cut in... This scene, after he finishes getting ready to go to bed, we see that he sleeps in a... Well, we saw it earlier, but he sleeps in a sensory deprivation tank because he hears everything. And in the theatrical cut, we don't get much of this. But in the director's cut, we see that he hears a gun go off. And we see the woman who... Somebody who was shot crawling and begging for help next to the tank. And right after it closes, the camera pans over and she's gone. You know, it shows that this he does this so he doesn't have to hear the sounds of crime. He doesn't have to hear the sounds of the city. So this way he can rest. But we'll get some more of the changes after uh, the next break. Okay. For your sake, I hope justice is found here today. Before justice finds you. And we're back. So, the other, um, another change that was cut from the uh, theatrical cut, like you mentioned earlier, was an entire plot thread yep. that I, I never, I can't even comment on. So, do you want to tell me what it's about? Sure. So, after the night of Daredevil killing Kasa- getting Casada killed, we get pretty much the normal stream from the theatrical cut of him and his partner going to the coffee shop and everything, and he and Electra have this really stupidly choreographed fight in a uh, school park. Nice. Um, we get a scene where Matt Murdock and his partner, played by John Favreau, go and they meet a guy who is played by Coolio, of all people. Kind of surprised by that, but he does a good job. And he's basically he's wrongfully accused of murdering someone. And it turns out it's actually the same woman that Murdoch heard the night before, the one I mentioned that he hears the sound of a woman dying. And this plot thread, we find out, eventually adds to the main story of the movie. And one of the issues you can have with the theatrical cut is near the very end of the movie, the police just suddenly figure out who the kingpin is. Yeah, that's not well explained. No. Director's Cup fixes that. This plot thread leads directly to that revelation. Because you find out that the person who murdered her is actually the Kingpin's assistant. And Oh. Yeah. And so John Favreau figures this out. John Favreau's character figures this out. Calls up Ben Urich and tells him, who then goes to his friend in the police who finds Kingpin's assistant... And says to him, like, you know, I know you murdered that woman. And he said, you know, I want my lawyer. I don't want to talk. And he goes, all right. 
You get your lawyer, and then we'll work on your plea bargain. Basically, that's how they fi- they find the kingpin. This Yurik even tells him, "I know who the kingpin. You know, I know who the kingpin is. I don't have proof, but I know someone who does." And so, basically, the assistant tells them who the kingpin is. They don't show him telling them this on screen, but that's how they it's find a plot. out. And this whole missing plot, this whole deleted plot, leads to that moment. So, like I said, this director's cut actually fills plot holes. I'm really curious to see how this movie would have done if this version of the movie, if this version of it had come out in theaters. Probably better. Yeah, honestly, definitely better from a critical standpoint. Yeah, and to be and. Also, if they wanted to, even if they still wanted a PG-13 movie, they could have edited this to still keep PG-13. Well, the other thing that we kind of miss in the theatrical cut is we don't see until the very end is how uh, good of a fighter and how brutal the Kingpin really can be. Oh, yeah. Up until the very end, he's just kind of, he's a mobster. That's all we know about him. I mean, he's big and intimidating looking, but yeah, we don't see him do anything until the very end, which makes for a good revelation at the end. It's like, holy crap, you know, not only is this guy, you know, smart and savvy and everything, but he can beat the crap out of people. Now, in the director's cut, in the theatrical version, when they first introduced the Kingpin, he's he's just kind of standing by a window and his assistant says, you know, someone's talking, you know, somebody's talking. And, you know, someone always does. And they just kind of go meet with people. In the director's cut, he passes by two guards who possibly leaked information, kills one instantly by bashing over the head with his cane, grabs the other one by the throat and crushes his neck, and then throws him to the ground. Yeah, that would have been pretty awesome to see. Yep. Curse you, director's uh, theatrical cut? Yeah, curse you, studios. No kidding. Now, to be fair, uh, I, the studio – this was before Marvel was producing movies on their own steam. Mm-hmm. This one was actually produced by – 20th Century a, Fox. Right, a very a, – a, a sub-studio of Fox. Yeah. And just think, if this had done much better, we could already have a Daredevil reboot by now. Probably. Or, you know, seven different sequels like X-Men. Yep. Uh, also, one of the – other big differences of the two versions is the romance between uh, Matt Murdock and Elektra is downplayed significantly. There's a scene in the theatrical version where the two of them are on a roof together and it rains. And he says, you know, when it's raining, I can see it's like I can see because of the sounds that the raindrops make. And so they have this romantic scene there and the theatrical cut, they end up sleeping together right afterwards. And right before it, he hears like a mugging going on. And he, but he ends up staying with her. In the director's cut, he leaves her on the roof. He runs off, gets dressed up as Daredevil, and he goes and kicks the crap out of a mugger. Uh, yeah, I guess that that's a good scene. Don't get me wrong. I there's part of me that likes the Daredevil and Electra romance because, but they didn't really cover the whole pack. She's supposed to be bad for him. Mm-hmm. Thing. Where in this case they're supposed to, they're kind of they come off as good for each other, well until Electra stabs him in the chest. But yeah, that's another story. Yeah, so I I kind of like that they downplayed it because like we mentioned before Jennifer Garner puts on a cruddy performance in this movie. So to be honest, the less she's in it, I think the movie's better for it. Well, inevitably, I guess we're gonna have to cover the Electra movie one day. <laughs> Ugh, maybe not. I, I think I've seen like a scene from it, and it was really bad. I watched the first half hour, and it's just, yeah. Poor man. I know. Uh, uh, it's taken therapy, so. Yeah. Um, we have another difference. Right after the funeral scene for Electra's father, which, by the way, the guy who plays Electra's father, I don't know the actor's name, but he's been in a lot of stuff. Kingsley. Huh? Uh, it's Kingsley, I think. No, it's, I don't think it's... It's not Ben Kingsley. It's a different... It's a... At least don't... It Hang on. <laughs> Hang on, people. Yes, we're doing this on the... Uh, we're doing this while we're... Oh, recording. Eric Every. 
Huh? I'm probably slaughtering this. Eric Avery. Okay. I could have sworn he's... Uh, I'm just confusing actors. Well, I, I've seen him in other movies. He was in The Mummy. He was, like, the professor in The Mummy. And he was really good yeah. in that. And he... This guy's been in a ton of stuff. And he's a really good actor, and I thought he did a good job as Nicholas Nachios in the small part that he had. Well, to be fair, it's uh, he's it's easy to see why I would confuse him with Ben Kingsley, though. This is true. They are similar. They're both good actors, they're, too. They're bald. They're <laughs> British. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh. I'll shut up now before I start offending various demographics. <laughs> um, so anyway, after the funeral scene for him, in the theatrical cut... Ben York, uh, played by Joey Pants, is, I I'm not going to butcher his real name, and everyone just calls him that anyway. Um, in, in the theatrical cut, he tells Murdoch, it's like, I have a lead, you know, just so you know, the kingpin, you know, he talks to him a little bit, but in a little bit later scene, actually, he says to him as he kind of finds out that Matt Murdoch is Daredevil, he says, you know, the kingpin doesn't just kill you, he kills your whole family. But instead, in this scene, we get him saying... I have information on your client's case. The, let's, the you know, subplot. Yeah, the subplot that got cut. And he tells him, you know, there's a crooked cop on Kingpin's payroll. And this actually pays off a little bit from in the first courtroom scene in the movie with Jose Casada. We see that, ben, you know, that Matt Murdock can, you know, hear somebody's heartbeat. He can kind of tell where the, when they're lying. You know, he's kind of like a human lie detector. Well, in a courtroom scene with this cop, he listens to his heartbeat and he goes, he's telling the truth. Wait a minute, you know, somebody's got to be lying. He finds out that the crooked cop has a pacemaker. And that proves, he goes, you lied in court, because I can tell. So when he sees the pacemaker, he realizes, like, oh, crap, I screwed up. You know, yeah, he was lying, but I couldn't tell. So the crooked cop is actually the one that tells him, you know, he tells him at the kingpin, and he goes, look, it doesn't matter. Your girlfriend's dead, you know. Kingpin doesn't just kill you. He kills your whole family. He's going to kill me if I talk, too. And this also leads into Murdoch's partner discovering that Kingpin's lackey, Wesley, is, you know, the one who murdered the woman instead of their client. Well, let's talk a little bit more about this after one more break. Okay. Give him a card, Wesley. I'm always on the lookout for new blood. I'm sorry, Mr. Fisk. My partner's a little overzealous. We can't represent you. <laughs> why is that? <laughs> yes, why is that, Mr. Murdoch? Because we only handle clients who are innocent. <laughs> innocent, he said. It's pretty funny. <laughs> you know, I've learned one thing in all my years in this business. What's that? Nobody's innocent. Nobody. All right, we're back. And one last difference between the two versions that I... I don't know. I mean, it wasn't a huge difference, but I thought it was good, was... Well, there's a an important character arc of Daredevil we haven't really mentioned, is that Daredevil, for all the hell he goes through, he's a pretty devout Catholic. Mm-hmm. And granted, he's not exactly doing... You know, he's not exactly doing the, you know, thou shalt not kill rule very well, but he's supposed to be very faithful. And the movie actually covers it pretty decently. There's a, um, I guess, I guess the trope is morality pet, morality, I don't know. There's a kind of a moral compass character named Father Everett in the film. But his, the difference between the two versions is pretty stark. In the theatrical cut, he knows that Matt Murdock is Daredevil. From the get-go. Yep, right from the beginning. Because right after the part where he kills Casada, he shows up, he's in the confessional, and he says, you know, Father, I've sinned. He goes, look, you're not asking for forgiveness. You're asking for permission. I can't give you that. And uh, they have, like, a quick little quip, which I liked, where he says, I'm not crazy about the costume either. And so later on, you know, he knows Matt Murdock has Daredevil, so when Daredevil drops down into the church near the very end, injured... He already knows it's him. But in the director's cut, he doesn't know. And we get a really good scene where Matt Murdock sits down in empty church, and Father Everett walks over to him and says, you know, you 
come here once in a while, just but there's never anybody else. You know, why do you come here? He goes, it's quiet. You know, I like the silence. And all of a sudden, you hear a siren from a fire truck. And throughout the movie, they like using this kind of blue afterimage effect for the things that he hears, for the most part. And all of a sudden, you get like this big blue ghost-like fire truck driving straight through the church as you hear it drive by outside. And he just kind of winces and says, most of the time. And so he's, and the Father Everett says to him, he's like, you know, you look like you're troubled. I want to help you. Trust me, I've heard everything. And Murdoch just kind of smiles and says, I'm sure you have. And so when he shows up later on, he goes, how about this one, Father? And he says to him, you know, I still want to see you here. I still want to see you come in to church. And so at the very end of the movie, he's walking around, he's walking around the city, walks past the church as everyone's getting out. And he goes, how about next Sunday? Murdoch kind of nods and walks away. You know, he in the theatrical cut is he's trying to constantly seek, you know, like, I want permission to do what I do. I have to be, you know, I'm justice. Whereas in the director's cut, it's at the very end, he sees like, you know, it's might be something I should start doing. It's something that could help. Because he's got a lot. You can tell in both versions, he's got a lot of pain. I mean, let's be honest here. It's, Daredevil's a unique character in his own right. But effectively, he's following the Batman trope. Mm-hmm. His dad was killed. In, almost practically in front of him. Yep. And he's acting out as part of it. Yep, whereas the unlike Batman, though, he kills people. He specifically target you know, he'll target the bad people, but he'll kill them. Or cause them to die. And a line I loved when he fights Casada and knocks him down onto the train tracks and Casada's like, I'll kill you and he shouts, See that light at the end of the tunnel? That's not heaven. That's the sea train and poof. So uh, is there any other point we need to make? Um one thing I you know, we didn't really bring up is Murdoch's partner, played by John Favreau. Um, I don't like him. I don't like this character. Well, he's from the comics, but from what I understand the comic, I, I can't really speak to the comic version of the character. So yeah, I I don't. If the comic book version is different, you know, maybe he is, but I don't like how Favreau portrays him, especially after seeing the Iron Man movies. Because he puts on the exact same performance in this movie that he does in those, as Tony Stark's bodyguard. Without, you know, driving, nearly crashing the car while Black Widow changes in his seat. Yeah. And in this one, I mean, the two of them actually do have some good on-screen chemistry together. I think they work well together. Um, Affleck and Favreau, they're funny in in the scenes where they're supposed to be funny. And, like, when... Murdoch first sits down in the coffee shop when they're talking in the director's cut. He mentions, you know, Favreau goes, why are you always cut up? You always disappear in the middle of the night. You come back, you got bruises and cuts on you. And he goes, I joined Fight Club. But first rule, I'm not supposed to tell you. He goes, yeah, that'd be funny if I saw the movie. I haven't seen the movie. I don't know what you're talking about. And they have kind of like just a little, it felt like a natural conversation between two smart asses. Yeah. But I don't, I don't, think he's all that good in this. I think he's a better at, he's not as good of an actor as he thinks he is. But he's a good director. He's I'll a good director. That. Oh no, I'll definitely not argue that, but is it the character he betrays in this one is almost identical to how he portrays the bodyguard in the Iron Man movies. Yeah. And whereas in that one he had really smart ass quippy Tony Stark to play off of, in this one he just comes off as stupid. You know, he doesn't come off as a very interesting character. Though, in the director's cut, he is the one who contacts Yurik to break the case of, I know who, ki- you know, I know who killed my client, you know, killed the woman, and I know who can lead you to the kingpin. So, at least he has a purpose. Whereas in the uh, theatrical cut, he's just kind of there as goofy comic relief. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it's funny comic relief, but that that's sure. really all he is. Yeah. Okay. I think that's all the major characters. Yeah. Oh, dumb question. Mm-hmm. We only see her very briefly in the um, theatrical cut, but do we see any more of 
uh, John Favreau's and uh, Ben Affleck's secretary. Oh, in the, uh, actually, we do. Uh, she's the one that helps him break the case, actually. Because uh, I, I did quick research on it. She's actually, like, the longest-running love interest for Daredevil. Oh, really? Yeah. Huh. So, I think... I have to wonder if Elektra was shoehorned in because she'd be, you know, more of the action character versus something like that. Mm-hmm. Well, no, she actually helps him break the uh, case. When there's a scene in the director's cut where, obviously, this is part of this plot line, but the two of them break into uh, the woman's house, her apartment, they're looking around and Favreau... Legal procedures? What's that? Yeah. Well, Favreau keeps saying, like, we're going to get arrested. We're going to get arrested. What are you doing? Um, and he goofs around. He break, he almost breaks stuff. He knocks things over because he's a bumbling idiot. But then Matt Murdock finds he puts his hands over, like, random things in the house. And he puts his hand over a um, notepad. And then... He goes like, here, write this down. M O M, you know, nine twenty three or something like all these numbers. And so later on, Favreau's sitting there and he's like, I don't know what this is. The secretary looks at it and goes, What if you do this? And she flips it over. It says W O W, which Wesley Owen Welch. That is the Kingpin's assistant. That's his initials. And that's what helps okay. him go. I got it. So she does show up in that, and she helps him figure out who the m- real murderer is. I think that's everything. Yeah. Final opinions, which we'll start after a break. You killed the only two people I ever loved. Why? Business. It's all that ever is, business. And we're back with final opinions. Let me start this time. Um, it's not my favorite superhero movie. I think that still goes to the first Captain America. And I'm a huge Cap fan. I'm still of the opinion, you know, it's actually pretty good. Theatrical cut is... It's it's a B-. minus. Uh, could they have had... It's good, just not great. Could they have had better actors? Some of the roles, yeah. But Ben Affleck, he's not great. Carrying the Wounded Loner... But he's okay. Jennifer Garfield's Electra. Uh, no, just no. She doesn't do the character well, and not that she's a bad actress. And uh, both Duncan and Farrell ultimately steal the show. I mean, this is definitely kind of in the vein of Emperor's New Groove. They they just make the make the movie a lot a lot of fun. And I really wish we could have seen Duncan again as a kingpin. Yeah, maybe even a McGuire. Spider-Man series. That would have been a nice... Yeah. I, I would have loved a live-action recreation of that scene I mentioned from the cartoon where he shocks him, showing that he's just a total, you know, muscle-covered badass. Yeah. Now, it's still a far cry above Ghost Rider, which the director was attached to. So, as he directed Ghost Rider... And, hell, I like the first Ghost Rider. Nick Cage and all. Um, but, eh, it's Okay. Now, Marvel is, like I mentioned earlier, Marvel is rebuilding Daredevil for a lim- limited miniseries running on Netflix next year. Kind of, I think it's, if correct me, I'm sure the internet will correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's in the vein of DC's Green Arrow TV show. So, which, if those of you on the net who haven't seen, it takes a while to get going, but it's very good. So, I look forward to what uh, Marvel is going to do with Daredevil, especially since they own the rights now. This isn't like Spider-Man or X-Men, which is owned by Sony and Fox. This is Marvel has retained has recaptured the rights for Daredevil. So, what about you? Uh, I remember when I first saw the theatrical cut, I liked it. I thought it was a fun movie. It had some good moments in it. And like I said, I really liked how they showed, you know, that Daredevil's not invincible, you know, where he's pulling out the tooth. And I thought it was pretty good. However, now that I've rewatched the director's cut for the first time in a few years, I barely remembered it from when I first watched it. Wow. It really is a huge improvement. And if, for those of you listening, if you only watch one version of the movie, watch this one. Feel free to watch both versions, you know, just to see the differences. 
but definitely watch this one. The story is better. The characters are better. The action moments actually hit harder because of the R rating. You know, it feels more impactful. It has more impact to it. It's a bit more brutal. It's just a better movie. And even if, like I said, even if you've seen or even if you didn't really care for the theatrical edition, try this one. You might really like it. Like I said, from one of the reviewers said, unless your only problem with the movie was Ben Affleck, this will change your opinion. And I like Ben Affleck. I think he's a good actor. Arguably, maybe they could have done, you know, pick somebody else, but he's far from the worst actor in this movie. He does a good job, and he's really trying. Michael Clark Duncan and Colin Farrell both, of course, steal the show. I agree on that. And you had mentioned there was some controversy of minor controversy of Michael Clark Duncan as Kingpin. When I heard, I just went, I don't know. I just went, I don't know. I can just say I'm just saying Man of Steel had a controversy. Oh yeah, I think some people did have a problem. But to be honest, the minute I heard Michael Clark Duncan was playing Kingpin, I went perfect. I don't care that you know. It, you know, different race. Who cares? He's physically and performance-wise, he is perfect for this character. Before I even saw the movie, I figured he would be perfect. And yeah, he was perfect. He got the character down amazing. And Colin Farrell, of course, just delight to watch from beginning to end. You can tell he's definitely having fun with the role. Oh, yeah. And Jennifer Garner, in both versions, unfortunately, is not very good. But like I said, she's her part is downplayed significantly in the director's cut, which I think is also a plus. And again, to be fair, she is good in the action scenes. She does a good job with the fight choreography and easily recommend the director's cut. It is a great movie. You know, there is one point I forgot. Mm -hmm. We've pop song, the movie. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, hey, I'm one who thinks that a good piece of music can actually be very powerful in a movie. Oh, I agree. See, um, see Forrest Gump and the use of turn, turn, turn from one of my favorite examples. Um, but here they lay on the – I'm not sure you could call it entirely pop, some pop, some emo songs. Yeah, just it's, a, it's one after another. It is kind of a, a – At least in the theatrical cut. Yeah, it's it's about the same with the director's cut. Um it is kind of a really eclectic collection of music. I actually own the album, like the yeah. I own the soundtrack, and I like it. It also I like it also raised Evanescence to a yeah major band status. This is true. This is the movie that got Evanescence popular because they had their two. I think there were only two big huge hits in this movie, which were My Immortal, which they played during the um, funeral for Nicholas Nachios, and Bring Me to Life, which I like. Bring Me to Life. I think it's not used very well in this movie because they just kind of use it when Elektra is training for that short little training sequence and uh, Matt Murdock is getting, you know, getting suited up, which the one thing I do like what they did with it was there's a female and male singing in this song. And whenever they have Amy Lee, she's the singer for Evanescence. Whenever she's singing, they focus on Elektra. And then when you hear the guy singing, they quick focus over to Daredevil. Right. So I thought that was cool that they did that, but I think it could, probably could have been used a little bit better. And I really like the um, song "The Man Without Fear," which plays when Bullseye, uh, like, and Daredevil first face off. It's by Drowning Pool and Rob Zombie. It, it's a little corny because of the lyrics, but it's fun. It's a badass song. It's a cool metal song. Okay, so. What do you say for the next episode? What do you want to do? Well, next episode, uh, we wanted to do kind of theme episodes sometimes, and so I can't. well, we already did it with the Casey Jones. This is true, you know, a character over a, a franchise. Yep. And so I came up with the idea is I was listening to um, the one of the retrospectives from Game Trailers. They do retrospectives on different video game franchises, and they were talking about Final Fantasy, and of course. There's a specific character in Final Fantasy VII that dies. And so when they were talking about it, I was just kind of thinking about it. I said, we should... A good idea would be deaths in fiction. and At least ones that hit us really hard. Exactly. Ones that were important to us. Whether they were good, like the one in Final Fantasy VII, which I'm not going to be covering that one next time. I have a good personal one that I'm going to cover next time. 
or bad, like Captain Kirk in Star Trek Into Darkness. Oh, good lord. That that movie deserves its own entire episode. Oh, it's coming. Its day will come. Its day will come sooner than you may think. Anyway. It tasks me. It tasks me. It, it tasks me, and I shall riff on it. <laughs> anyway, to the I point. We're going to cover, we're gonna cover death and fiction. I shall... Anyway. I'm going to stop quoting that movie. But. Yeah, we're going to cover de- death in fiction next time. Yep. At least um, some of the shocker ones, and just co- talk about you know why we enjoyed it, why we didn't enjoy it, why it was so shocking, and we'll go from there. Yep, basically, and also cover if it's from a TV show, that's basically cover the episode that it was in, if it was a good episode or not as well. Or in my, one of my case, it's a book. Yep, So. or in my case, video game. All right, then. Well, we'll see you next time, folks. All right. Take care, everyone. But answer me this. How do you kill a man without fear? By putting the fear in him. Oh, I like that.